Please listen carefully. G'day. You're listening to City Speak with Greg Van and Stephen Yarwood, a podcast about cities by people who love cities and want you to love your city too. Hello there, Stephen. Hi, Greg. We're in the same place. We're in the same room. There's a bit echoey too, isn't it? Yeah, but you know, there's a good reason why it's echoey, because we're in a building that's, what, 100 and... Yeah, 130, 140 years. It's solid stone. The, the floors are even solid stone. Where are we? We're in the Barossa Valley. You know, near your... This is your part of the world, really, isn't it? Yeah, just north, stomping ground. Obviously a very famous wine region, and we do actually have some red wine with us. We're sipping it very slowly. Well, you know, I think it's a requirement if you're here, you've actually got to drink some of their wine, don't you? For sure. Um, but, uh, no, so we've had a good drive around, and we, we could talk about the Barossa another time, because yeah. we, we're not going to... There's going... definitely an episode on the Barossa. So, but yeah. not, not today. That's not today. Gentrification. Yes, indeed. Gentrification. That's From our all topic. the marketing hype, I hear that's a really good thing. Well, that's our question today. What is it really? And is it actually a good thing? Never make assumptions about, don't believe the hype. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, you know, how often do you see real estate ads or, or, you know, listen to real estate talk where they, oh, yes, it's being gentrified, you know, that's it, oh, yeah, this is the best thing ever. And you often hear conversations amongst people you know that sort of go, oh, yes, it's it's much nicer now that it's been gentrified, hasn't it, this area of town. And uh, so it's generally used in, in common parlance as that kind of seemed to be a really good thing. But uh, so our question today is, let's, you know, is it? And so let's dive in and find out, you know, if it, if it is. Okay, so you've done your research this time. I'm, I'm just following your lead, but I've got a definition. So, oh, good on you. Uh, considering you've done all the heavy lifting, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the easy stuff. So definition, the process whereby the character of a poor urban form area is changed by wealthier people moving in, improving housing and attracting new businesses, often displacing current inhabitants in the process or the process of making someone or something more refined polite or respectable yeah. <laughs> that's got it's got to be the first yeah, one yeah. in our case maybe we could be gentrified you know that'd be good if someone could come if we could find is there anyone out here could out there could gentrify us we'd be appreciative of hearing from you i like the old australian comment yeah nah actually they're really good definitions i, I think we i got them out of you know one of the one of the dictionaries and because um, it does sort of show you both sides of the coin and you know that's the sort of stuff i think we'll really get into but i was interested in some of the history of the the term and um, the historians say you know that gentrification's actually been taking place since Roman times it's 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 a process and a phenomenon that's been around for millennia Um, but the term was only actually comes from you know the gentry the concept of gentry being the upper class the well-to-do of gentle birth as the uh, French said it was coined uh, as in its current term by a sociologist in England and I think about the um, that was at the 60s yeah yeah so uh, Ruth Glass uh, a sociologist first used it in its current sense in that when she was talking about the influx of middle class people displacing lower class worker residents in urban neighbourhoods in London in particular. I just want to firstly acknowledge it's great that it was a female sociologist that picked up this urban term because urban planning has been dominated by men for you know as long as I can remember and you know that's 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 a thing as well 
and it's interesting actually that it was a sociologist and a woman that sort of started to identify this issue about class warfare class change class um, displacement displacement uh, challenges to to lower class etc uh, but then i also you know quite like the history of cities stuff um you know call myself an aspiring time traveler amongst many things so um certainly the history of cities is that they kind of always had a core you know you can't have urban sprawl until you've got somewhere to sprawl, to sprawl from, from yeah <laughs> Um, and, and then, uh, but then the whole car thing uh, really was about the sort of post World War Two flight to the suburbs in in America in the US white flight. Uh, and, yeah, it was and, very much a racial overtone, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. yeah. Right. And in fact, we've even been discussing that um, as we've walked around the the a, the townships here about uh, with my son trying to explain uh, to a few things to him about how shopping centres go on the fringes of cities where the cheap land is. It's always easier to. Um, do greenfields development on the edge the car said we'd all live in the suburbs and bigger blocks and we'd have this you know suburban dream etc but of course the result what happens when everyone moves to the suburbs uh, every, the, the inner cities get get run down you know there's not they end up i mean let's, the, the flight to the suburbs had you know it was aspirational mm. it was really people looking for a better life that bigger home and a bigger block of land and the car was going to be the simple way that less they pollution, could get everywhere less crime yeah yeah all of those things and so not not to decry suburbanization that happened but it had these other implications as many as is often the case with cities and history, there's the unforeseen consequences. And one of the unforeseen consequences was that the inner areas became very run down, uh, often dominated by people who were quite really poor, um, and they were sort of forced to live there. It was often unsafe. And a lot of the city services that... Um, that were traditionally provided in inner cities before suburbanisation deteriorated, and so you know they were really not places, not nice places to be in many yeah, cases. The, the buildings were significantly run down. Uh, it's really kind of fascinating. I can always do the Adelaide example, but you know, in the, in the um, you know 150 years ago, the downtown of Adelaide had a population of about 70,000. Yeah. Uh, then, uh, as we went to the suburbs, it went down to about uh, eight thousand people and now it's back up to about twenty thousand and about 30 years ago it was that old adage of who the hell would want to live in the city you know that's where and and the city of adelaide was actually zoned mostly for industrial light industrial and commercial activity um taking a broader approach of course melbourne was a i i i I like the technical term downtown melbourne was a festering shithole yeah Um, it was a desperate place in the 90s yeah and and um and also even downtown los angeles i think is a really really good example of suburbanization yeah. and the car and freeways and and downtown and, and we'll get back to that because we'll talk about how downtown uh, los angeles has been gentrified as well uh and then it became it gives us less people less passive surveillance more crime um you know lower uh, poor poor housing quality uh, p- poor housing choices so it was where people of lower socioeconomic uh, lived um they didn't have access to the right services um and there's a whole pile of stuff going on there and, and in brisbane you know it was there were a lot of inner city boarding houses you know with single men often you know living on really really limited means mm-hmm. and, and often with other other sort of problems health problems or you know drug abuse problems and so on so there was a whole lot of stuff going on that really made those areas people look down people who were well to do look down their nose at the inner city uh, in those post-war decades yeah a dramatic change and and obviously driven uh, by 
by and large uh, by baby boomers uh, in Australia in particular who had kids, they were driving the Australian economy, they were driving the shape of cities, they were driving the taste, the flavours, the, what, was, what was hot, what was not. And they were also driving the cars that we used to make in Australia. Yes, yeah. and it, was, it was all very much a part of it. But then all of a sudden downtown became uh, cool again and, and hip. And, yeah. and all of a sudden there was a change and um, and so we've seen some significant changes that have resulted in this term gentrification oh, it, it, interesting enough, it, so gentrification was in, as a term was invented by 1964 it's bang on the money when we talk about cars, post-war suburbanisation and then of course the, the, the down run of these areas and, and now of course we're getting to the 60s where we're starting to see a change and people are starting to t- eye off these Yeah, I reckon almost, it lasted almost till the 80s yes. I reckon yeah, yeah, that, that people yeah. people, you know, were general. Like I grew up in a you know a suburban setting mm-hmm. in, in Brisbane. So and, did I. And you and you in Adelaide, and so that was just what we did. You know that that's what our generation did, and and you really got most places by car. Mm-hmm. Um, and you lived in a you know a house a reasonable sized house on a reasonable block of land and and so this is these all these things are nuances and shades of grey but the I think the the central point here is that we went way too far in one direction and then the swing back to the inner cities when the middle classes started to rediscover that there were there was a lot to like about living in the inner city and there were a lot of constraints and things that were not what they hoped they would be at living in the outer suburbs. Yeah, and I, th- I think your comment about the 80s is important too because, you know, heritage wasn't really, you know, we saw the demolition of very significant heritage buildings or even actually, uh, you know, what could be seen as sort of marginal heritage that might be industrial buildings that now we'd look at and go, oh, that's cool and we can do the lofts, etc. Yeah. Um, but they were all being ripped down. They didn't have value. They, there wasn't value in them. There was no need to renovate them to, to use those but of course then um, sort of the, that, that era of, of demolishing things and putting up glass towers and starting to look at uh, the value of the existing heritage infrastructure really started to come back in the 80s and and so it became cool again to start to look at you know what it would be like and of course there's also a lot of parks and a good good quality spaces close to employment there's a there's a good reason for inner city development and we will always talk that sort of urbanism up in terms of, you know, missing middle and scale and and, and character and, and access to services. But it's but the problem here is that we're going to start to explore is that um, it means that if it you know it's it, if it swings back the other way, the the whole economics of this completely changes, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I wanted to quote that source that we use often it because it's completely unimpeachable. Uh, Wikipedia that made a nice um, quote about this is that you know gentrification occurs when the suburban gentry tire of the automobile-dependent urban sprawl style of life. These professionals, empty nest uh, age parents, recent university graduates, etc., perceive the attractiveness of the city centre after having early abandoned it. And, And so... You know, it's this sort of reawakening of interest in inner city lifestyles that's driven what's known as gentrification in most Western cities. Yeah, and then of course, if you want to give a sort of like a, a sort of an urbanist's take on on it, it is characterised by a very famous uh, urbanist and academic and, and commentator, Richard Florida, uh, who talks about the rise of the creative class.
class and there's another whole conversation he did some really interesting work on gender and uh, and uh, sexuality gay the gay communities and economies and uh, and there's some really good stuff there and, and their role in this gentrification yeah. process that's yeah. contested we're not that's yeah, contested that is contested know? we're um, certainly not blaming yeah, yeah. sexuality and, and, on on, but, on the challenges of yeah and so that's a that's a really an interesting discussion itself but but the bigger picture here is that broader cohort of well-educated people mm-hmm. that were you know knowledge workers technical professional creatives driving the new city economies so when as cities you know stop making things and started providing services and then started providing ideas the inner city became the place to be for a lot of that. Yeah, and and then then the result of that, and and you did you did make comments about it being a sort of a generalisation, but there there are patterns. There are patterns, um, not in, in in just in individual cities, but there are patterns across Australian cities and American cities, and uh, the list goes on. And what that then means is that third era. That third wave of urbanisation is that these people are being, these poorer people, socially, uh, economically disadvantaged people who did live in these inner cities, weren't then that actually swapping places with the people in middle suburbs. The newest suburbs were being built right on the edge of the cities um, where you'd need two cars uh, or 2.5 cars per household. Uh, and now they're, and they're, they're really not delegated. It's not like a swap. It's a it's a transfer of those people from inner city to the furthest reaches and completely cut off by social services and, and, and jobs and a whole range of infrastructure their their own local communities etc. So that was that was the next wave of it. So yeah, and and and, and you know back on the other side in, in the inner cities, we've seen you know over the well even more so through COVID, but over the last ten to fifteen years, this incredible ramping up of the cost of real estate in the inner. City city and you know whilst there has been a lot of you know development in the inner city it hasn't anywhere near kept pace for demand for inner city real estate and uh so you know that it's it's sort of like this this process where it's spiraling in both directions you know if, if you live in the inner city you can afford to live in the inner city if you don't then you're really driven to options that are often particularly the people of limited means get driven white as you say to the outskirts and you know that that comes with it a whole lot of attendant problems so you're creating more likely uh, sort of concentrations of privilege and uh, low socioeconomic uh, circumstances disadvantaged in in different locations yeah and in in the u.s there was also some really interesting work about zones uh, around cities where um, it was directly correlated to uh, which school you could go to and the taxes you paid uh, and the the places you were able to and it and then it really demarcated where uh, white people and, and people of race and color were and it created ghettos and 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 communities where people of only one race or communities started to gather uh, and that was a feedback loop because of course then if you're in the gentrified area and your price is going up you can you know it's a feedback loop i can afford better and i can invest more and i can actually borrow more off what i own and etc whereas the other places they didn't even just not go up they went down in value and they started to become places where crime increased and reputation was tarnished and and it was just uh, you know so these are the cities are patterns and this is a really this is probably the best example for me of urban patterns in terms of where people live and and how it feeds into development and infrastructure and decisions and how that affects intergenerational uh, activity. Yeah, and, and the intergenerational thing was something I was going to pick up on is that we're now seeing the baby boomers who've moved back downtown. It's their kids 
who are probably on the whole better off uh, because they've got the bank of mum and dad behind them who can afford to recolonise the inner city as well. Uh, whereas those who don't have that advantage of accident of birth are going to, you know, be, be find that harder to do. Now, I'm sure there's people sitting out there listening to this saying, oh, that's not true because I know someone who goes against that trend. So it's important always to emphasise here that, yes, there'll be a sample of one or three out there that you can say are different to what we're saying, but we're trying to pick out the threads of the real big waves of... of change in city structure and socio-economic and this has happened city after city after city there's no question about it Uh, the other one i was going to say and i was going to ask you when we can we can do this because i also think people are going to be listening saying yeah but there are some benefits yeah yeah and i don't know when when when's a good time to put them in because there's a couple that i really did want to touch on in terms of some benefits which is it's really hard because i don't want to sort of oversell or undersell this i don't want to bash it to to, to, yeah yeah. i mean there are some major i think fundamentally there are some you know the word to me, evokes problems rather than solutions. Yeah, but um, there are there are definitely one in benefits. Pati- one know. in particular, I really you know is is the opportunity to protect some really valuable her- heritage buildings and the money that then's enabled to you know really kind of acknowledge the history of a, of a region and, and empower people to actually redevelop these and and repurpose buildings and another good example is industrial uh, land light industrial in particular which is often going to be immediately adjacent to uh, central business districts There'll often be uh, open plan, open space that was consciously planned. They'll be near river, uh, water lines. Um, and so there is a really good opportunity to repurpose that, increase densities. You know, industrial buildings can, you know, often you chuck in three or four stories and you can look in, in downtown Los Angeles and people are just pouring back into the CBD. So you bring life back into it, culture back into it. Um, people are going to be using less public transport. But it's about then infusing uh, housing diversity and having good policies around not just going, oh, we can gentrify this so we can triple the price. We can create a uh, homogenous monoculture of wealthy white people who, who who are all very delighted to see that the housing prices go up and have what I call the existing residents association, which is all about um, protecting their yes, interests. under the title Progress Association. Yes, yeah, under the... Under yeah, the, yeah and, and so assuming that, well, this is what we want, so we're going to keep it exactly the way we are. So there's, you know, there's opportunities, and that's about climate change and, and carbon emissions and, you know, more people li- walking and etc. So there are, you know, uh, some really great opportunities, access to social services, public transport, uh, more likely to ride. Walkability. Walkability. You know, walkability you know. is such a big piece of yeah. this, you know, that people don't want, you know, there's so many people I've, of my vintage who I know have moved back into the inner city and they say to me like it's a revelation. They said, oh, it's great. We can walk everywhere. Yeah, and, and <laughs> I sort of feel like saying, well, duh. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, but, they uh, lose weight. They live longer. They, yeah. use, uh, they use less electricity. You know, they may have one car they might not even have a car and 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 you know like so you have to kind of experience it to understand how good it is but once people do experience it you know and then so the problem with walkability is we don't have enough of it available to enough people so it actually means it has an impact on property prices because if you're living somewhere walkable people will pay a premium for it and the point being then you do price 
people out so you do what it is it's it's that classic feedback loop of of actually it's once again it's it's just about you know if you want to be healthy loneliness is another one i was going to talk about Mm -hmm. um the cause of interaction being able to you know talk to people in your park being the more you walk the more likely you're not going to bump into a friend and have a conversation if you're going past them at 70 kilometers an hour or 60 kilometers an hour in a car and so there is some benefits to gentrification but it, it can't just be to increase prices and have everyone's uh, you know a feedback loop of you know you don't belong here anymore this is for this is for us it's, yeah. it's not just about you know tech entrepreneurs and 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 do you know and 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 white anglo-saxon you know people who are you know earning three times the income etc and so that's the really big challenge because then all of a sudden where are the workers yeah well the essential workers is an issue in most you know places that you need to actually like from I guess, you know, I would say a barista is essential service for me, but, you know, they, that, but, you know, the, the nurses, the doctors, the sorry, not the doctors, but the nurses, the um, the teachers, the policemen, all of these sort of services that you need, where, where, you know, a lot of those people actually are being forced, forced out. But one of the impacts uh, is, is, the, is the, the rise of nimbyism in the inner cities because the people who've colonised it really like it and they don't, they resist change and they're actually pretty, usually pretty well-educated well-resourced and, and formidable opponents to anything else happening. So, One of my favourite little games when it comes to, to planners is, is calling um, planning speak. And I know nimbyism isn't really just purely for planners, but there would be some people... Oh, that yeah, we should say what so, a nimby is, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so a nimby stands for not in my backyard, which means that they, they don't want anything to have... You know, you, we're, we're meant to have power stations and you need, you need abattoirs, unless you're a vegetarian or a vegan, but, and you need all of this stuff, but not nowhere near where I live yeah. and, and so and, and those things are obvious but when it comes to a block of units or yes. you know some range Medium of density, high density, density yeah, you know yeah. sort of mm-hmm. you know people will say oh yeah live that, music we definitely yeah yeah we definitely need that just just nowhere near me you know and so we're a funny species you know we a lot of this idea we like to congregate with people like us because we feel comfortable and less threatened because you know we're living with the other well well-to-do white people or whatever it is and and yet all of the research when you look at this is that that's, uh, communities function better with diversity in age, background, and, you know, and ethnicity and, you know, what you do. And so, the, you know, as a species, we are drawn to one thing, which is actually the opposite of what actually works better for a community point of view and what also works better from an economic point of view. And that people miss that piece, you know, that... Yeah. that Young people, old people, um, you know, wealthy people, working class, yeah. students, yeah. you know, this and, diversity And the people, like the, the migrant communities that, that come into a country and are prepared to take any job to get ahead... And to help make a better life for their families, you know that that's uh, Australia is largely built on that ethic. Yeah, so where you know a lot of a lot of this is really where you end up with you end up with a gentrified inner city, which is then locking out um, other people who can't afford to live there because you there's a it's both expensive and there's not enough housing supply and variety of housing supply. And it's not just a social issue. This and this is this is where I often get fa- fascinated with people who, you know, uh, do tend to focus on economic development and they have a very simplified kind of like cars are good for economic development. We will not if everyone's stuck in a traffic jam. You know, tree, trees aren't, yeah, you know, with trees aren't good for cost, economic development. Cars that are costing 20 billion dollars in congestion yeah, every year. Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly. 
And and this is another really good example where you know this stuff really if if workers own two point five cars, live on the edge of cities, yeah, are struggling through higher interest rates, the increase in petrol prices, the cost of cars is going up now, um, and they're putting all of their disposing income into surviving and not actually and and then struggling to even get get into the places where they need to work. It is a break on uh, a productivity of not only a city or a state, but also a nation. It's it's yeah, not yeah, clever. It's, it's, it's not smart. It's not smart. And and look, I'd also say, look, we are not talking about everyone works in the downtown. You know, we know that only 10 or 12% of the jobs tend to be in the city centre. But if you take a 5k radius, then you start to put a lot more jobs and a lot of the high-end, well-paying jobs are in those areas. And so that's what we're really talking about here. Yeah, and that's also along the traditional main streets as well. The, one of the challenges there with, with gentrification is the prices, not only of housing goes up, but the pricing of retail. So it's not just about the price of housing, though. This is also about those main streets and, and the cost of retail floor space. And on main streets in particular, where traditionally uh, in, in times gone past, you had the, the local hardware store and the local milk bar or, or, or news agent or the local post office or, or all of those sorts of uh, small boutique businesses that represented the, the village, the, the main street, the, the suburb, the neighbourhood, the community. Um, the price of those retail floor spaces go up very, very significantly because the the value of the people who are living in the precinct with more disposable incomes, uh, they want different things. And so generally you'll also see that um, it will not only kind of like drive people on lower socioeconomic in, uh, profiles out of those precincts, uh, but it will also drive drive uh, small businesses out of those precincts because it will be the global brands that will actually be able to use those those floor space because they're uh, value adding and also just if I'm allowed to say just charging a bucket load for a white t-shirt because it's got a brand on it yeah. and, mm-hmm. and and Isn't so that great you know they pay, you pay a fortune so you can advertise their brand for them yeah well and it's all made unfortunately and sadly most of it's made in sort of Bangladesh or, or the Philippines or and Ethiopia, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, people earning two, $2 a day. That's another whole conversation. But um, this is also then because, and then the prices of the pizzas go up, the prices of the, the even the Euros and the restaurants and our premium restaurants. And hamburgers. And, and, oh, hamburgers. Yeah. You didn't pay $20 for a hamburger. Well, wow. you did pay $27 for a glass of wine. 26 right? 26 Oh, okay, yeah, that was yeah, infl- yeah. Well, inflation, <laughs> the way inflation's going. For a glass of wine in the inner city, man. Oh, well, that's, and that's a really good example. Yeah. But, but what it does is not just about um, them not being able to afford buyout houses, but you know people who do own their houses on low socioeconomic profiles in those places are still priced out of the precinct because they can't really afford to go to the, the value-added supermarket, the, the, the boutique supermarket. They, they can't get any fast food in those places. And the cost of car parking all of a sudden becomes an issue because it's so in demand that they put parking meters on there. And so it really starts to price them out in their whole lifestyle. You know, the cost of pizza doubles, you know. And so it really does start to undermine sort of the, the local micro-economy and how money circulates in those local communities. That's really important. That's worth noting. It really has this entire... In- Entire ecosystem influence. I guess this is where I want to say it's not just precinct. So we can talk in terms of sort of in, in terms of Adelaide. It's the inner western suburbs, and, and it's actually also the square mile of Adelaide. It's yeah. the southeast corner of Adelaide. Uh, the southwest corner is kind of like one of the new hip spots that's seeing it. But I have to say, since, in, 
since you moved out. Yeah, oh, yes, yeah, yeah, no, actually, since <laughs> when I moved in, um, but also where I live in Bowdoin, but so it is technically following me but but also what i would say without because i don't want to bash the projects there i think that the newest version of it is looking at affordable housing and it is talking about um, access near public transport and providing housing that might not necessarily even have car parking with it so they lower the prices and student housing and so there are contemporary policies that start to tackle those elements from my point of view from an economic perspective this is a, a mandate for a market failure that the government should intervene in. That's the role of government, and that's why providing affordable and social housing in areas where we need more diversity uh, and provide opportunities for people who support the economies of those areas to actually live there is a really important intervention in the housing affordability discussion. I've got a couple of examples from overseas that I wanted to mention, but give us some examples from Brisbane oh, as well. Brisbane, I think, you know, the very best example in Brisbane is New Farm. In the 70s and 80s, New Farm was a pretty, you know, disreputable part of the city, and the valley was, was likewise, even more so. And, and now that New Farm is one of the most expensive parts of the city, one of the most... Um, hard to get into. It's a held pretty tightly housing stock, you know, a lot by sort of baby boomers and their kids. And so, you know, it's really, it's a classic example of a place that has, it has an extraordinary increase in its housing values and to the detriment of many of the traditional residents of that part of the of our city. Balmain in Sydney, Richmond in Melbourne. Yeah, that's right. All the inner city, Carlton in Melbourne, mm-hmm. you know, was, was in the 70s. Yeah, Footscray's still the west, you know, the west in Melbourne. Footscray's gentrifying but not not i've been there recently but i'd suspect not to the same extent that some of the northern and eastern parts of the inner city have been but uh you know you see these trends they're not they're not universal it doesn't mean everywhere within 5k is experiencing exactly the same degree of the phenomenon but they're experiencing some form of it in sort of closing up i I do i I find american cities quite fascinating because they kind of amplify these things and i find you know american cities are extremes yeah, yeah yeah Yeah, well, you know, it's like you know, American people in a sense, but let's not go there. But then all that goes up, you know, yeah, three hundred and twenty oh, no, million audience. The, the, you know, the, the point being <laughs> that the ones that are listening to us are the really yeah, cool yeah, ones, the you know. Ones, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, that's all right. You know, you should meet some Australians, mate. <laughs> you know, no worries. But also, so one of the things that fascinates fascinates me about American cities, like in in Australia, when we have our elections, uh, most cities are kind of like fifty one percent red and forty nine percent blue in terms of politics, or all the other way around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, inner city tends margins, to be. Yeah. Inner city does tend to sort of lean to the left a little bit in, in Australia. There's no question about it. And we've seen that in the last federal election. But in America, it's kind of like cities are either red or blue. And so they do, you know, you kind of like, I don't want to live there because it's a right-wing redneck city or I don't want to live there because it's full of left-wing loonies. Yeah. I've kind of covered off. I've offended everyone that yeah, way. That's good, yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, so it's, and, but so they do amplify. And I think there are cities in, a, in, in America that kind of literally just tell the story when you actually mention the name of the city. So, like the, and I've got a list here. The number one is San Francisco. Like, and the cost of living in San Francisco just means that workers can't live there, that it's just tech people. It's influences it's it's people with big money um and, and it really has you know limited housing supply and it's got it's got a lot of heritage buildings and so that, that was an opportunity and it's all and so that's a, that's a really good one denver's on the list uh, as well boston uh, miami new orleans austin texas uh new york san jose in california phoenix sacramento so there are uh, philadelphia uh, los angeles as i mentioned so the point really and i spent a week living in downtown los angeles when i went over there 
there for a to speak at a conference and and really it was like it was it was down to like five thousand people and they were now seeing something like ten thousand people per year moving back into and i stayed in a renovated loft in a heritage building and so it was like an almost like a groovy little little neighborhood of new york and so you we really are starting to see and we use public transport the whole week for example yeah yeah in Los Angeles, yeah. <laughs> so um, so American cities really really amplify that. Have you got any other examples you can think of? Oh, like the UK is probably it's got some. Yeah, uh, look, I think Birmingham. I, there's cities throughout the Western world that you could you could point to. You know that the um, but you're right about the American cities. It's just so the extremes there are, are so evident and can be living next to one another almost. You know, if you kind of go through all this, you know, just to start to wind up. You know, here go back to our definition. The process whereby the character of a poor urban area is changed by wealthier people moving in, improving housing and attracting new businesses, often displacing current inhabitants in the process. It's a pretty good description. It doesn't go to the implications that we've drawn from it, but it's the truth of it, is that these areas that have become run down, particularly in the inner city, uh, suddenly become attractive again to wealthier people and they move in and they dispossess in many cases, the people who lived there because it was convenient for them to do so on limited means. Uh, and, and then it drives a whole lot of other in, other aspects. So there, like you said along the way, please don't think anyone listening that we're saying this is an awful thing, should never happen. But it has some serious limits as to what what really are how you use these forces for good and creating good policies i kind of think if something else we should we talked about uh housing of uh, housing mix uh housing diversity uh policies there are a whole pile of different organizations from uh, religious organizations to not-for-profits that put in affordable housing you know getting people aged housing so people who have grown up in in these environments who, who want to stay in their local communities but need to downsize there's a, there's a range of policy techniques that that need to be used subsidies uh, and services and and also even supporting some of these main streets to come back and supporting uh, activation of local craftspeople of local trades people of local communities uh, and and creating these it's all about that resilient community so there's there's a lot we can do about supporting main streets uh, supporting small businesses and not also even as simple as not just you know being th- very careful about you know where you do put these new shopping centres and how they are going to influence the small retail in often actually in heritage buildings that uh, that mean that not only it's a feedback loop once again they'll uh, they'll start losing revenue and income and it means that the buildings start to decline themselves and then that becomes less attractive and less people want to go there and the list goes on so there's there's a whole pile of triggers that can be used have you got any other examples well, I look, I, you mentioned in passing but the housing one I think is a big piece for me is that you know creating housing which is affordable properly administered to those who meet the means test to access that type of housing and able to have housing security in the long term and location which makes their lives productive and stable is a really good thing uh, for, from, from a government policy point of view. But one of, there's a flip side to all this, which we'll do another episode, Stephen, is about what do we do with the suburbs? You know, what do we do with those outer areas? So, again, I just think we're not all about trying to just deal with the inner city and forget everything else because there are implications on the other side of the coin, and that'll be another episode. But uh, I, I reckon just to kind of, you know, circle back around on this for me, my concern is not about gentrification only in its in its own right, but it's become a term of entitlement amongst, I think, the more privileged in our society, but also it's a term that's promoted by those who are making money off it, particularly 
particularly the real estate industry. So it certainly helps an area become more pleasant, and uh, but it also makes those areas more exclusive, uh, and you know the locking out of of the mix and and creates economic and social divides. I did want to mention a couple of books just finishing off. Richard Florida did actually write a book more recently called The New Urban Divide, which was exactly about these sort mm-hmm. of topics. Uh, but also the Grattan Institute, which amongst the many great pieces of research and publications, they they do wrote a book called City Limits about six or eight years ago, which was exactly on this topic. So if you want to know a little bit more about it, go and have a look at those. Uh, those of you that uh, have an opportunity to listen to this may well consider sharing it, and uh, and I'm sure hopefully it'll come up as a conversation sometime, if not in days or weeks, or but months or years, and uh, I've learned something, and uh, I hope the listeners have too. Thanks, yeah, Greg. Yeah, and, you know, we loved your feedback. You know, tell us what you think, and uh, you can do that via our website, uh, which is... Uh, cityspeakaustralia.net.au. 